Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Paul Salcini, author of the new book, Sondheim and Me. Many of you will know Paul as the founder and original editor of the Sondheim Review, the magazine that he launched in 1994. Over the following 10 years, Paul exchanged notes, letters, faxes, and phone calls with Stephen Sondheim, who it was clear was reading every word of every issue of the magazine. And he often had corrections and comments, or as Sondheim called them, emendations. On a few occasions, these included, quote, vigorous objections to what Paul had included in the magazine. Paul's new book chronicles his unlikely relationship with Sondheim during that eventful period that included the New York premieres of Passion and Saturday Night, as well as the Kennedy Center Sondheim celebration, Broadway revivals of six of Sondheim's major works, and the decade-long development of the musical that would eventually be called Roadshow. Here we go. Welcome, Paul Sassini. Thank you so much for joining me today on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book, Sondheim and Me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. The subtitle for the book is Revealing a Musical Genius. But how would you describe this book? My tagline that I've discovered is putting a human face on a genius. I try to make it as human as possible, and I think it reveals some things that people did not know before, and they can see his inner workings, they can see his mind working, and they can see his foibles, and occasionally how he gets upset, but also how kind he is, how generous. I think it reveals a lot of personality about him more 
than a biography would. And how did this all come about? Give us the backstory on how you first came to know Stephen Sondheim. I first came to know Stephen Sondheim when I saw Follies on Broadway in 1972. I was blown away. I didn't know anything about the show. I didn't know anything about Sondheim, though I had been to a lot of musicals. Somehow I missed company. I missed anything happened on the way to the forum. And so this was all new to me. And Follies, as you probably know, and your listeners would know, is such a unique musical. It has so many layers. So basically, it's a story about two couples who come back for a reunion of showgirls in which one of the women is still in love with one of the men. But it's much more than that. It's about our foibles. It's about our follies. It's really about the follies of human nature. And the score was so amazing. I was so blown away by follies that I started researching Sondheim. And I got a lot of material. I went to his shows. What were you doing at this time professionally? I'm a journalist. I was working at the Milwaukee Journal. It was one of my last years there because there was a merger and I took a buyout. But I was still at the paper. And my job at that point was staff development director. I had been state editor. I had been a reporter. I'd been there ever since college. And I really enjoyed the journalism of it. When I discovered Stephen Sondheim, I had collected all this stuff and I didn't know what to do with it. I thought maybe I'd write a book, but I didn't have the time. I didn't have the resources. That would meant a lot of travel. And as I said, I was working. And so I couldn't do that. And then it dawned on me that maybe I could have a newsletter, a journalistic newsletter. And so I thought, okay, let's do that. And so I did. It turned out to be the Sondheim Review. It turned out to be a magazine and it turned out to be quarterly. And we had subscribers all over the world. And this began in 1994. Correct. I didn't need Sondheim's permission, really. But I wrote him a letter saying that I was going to do this. And I thought maybe he'd write me a note back. We had exchanged a few notes before that. And he called me one Sunday afternoon. The phone just rang and there's Steve Sondheim. Yeah. Hi, this is Steve Sondheim. Right. Okay. All right. As I picked up the phone because I dropped it. Uh, uh, we had a long conversation. I'm not sure that he knew what the Sondheim Review was going to be. I tried to assure him that it was not a fanzine, that it was journalism, that we were going to have news and reviews and essays and articles and lots of stuff, journalism, all of it. And he sort of wondered about it, but he said, oh, well, okay, go ahead. He mainly wanted to talk about passion because passion was about to open then, and he was putting the finishing touches on this great musical that was going to open in May, I think. What was interesting was he talked about the film on which passion was based. It's based on an Italian film called Passione d'Amore. From my name, you know that I'm Italian, and I've seen a lot of Italian films, but I had not seen that one. And the next week, he sent me a videotape of Passion which knocked me off my feet. To a virtual stranger, basically. He, yeah, yeah, he right. goes out of his way to send you a videotape. Right. This was a videotape because this is before DVDs. Sure. So I played it and I realized what a powerful story it was. Grim, but powerful and fascinating characters, especially the Fosca. Fosca, you have to face the truth. Please. You have to give me up. Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. 
is not a choice and not much reason to rejoice but it gives me purpose gives me voice to say to the world this is why I live you are why I live loving you is why I do the things I do loving you is not in my control but loving you I have a goal for what's left of my life I will live and I would die for you that's all I was fascinated and at that point we were about to publish the first issue. I'd seen a preview of Passion and the first issue included a long interview with him, interviews with the stars, excerpts. I was very pleased with the first issue. Had there ever been a quarterly magazine devoted to a living author of any kind, much less a musical theater author? No, not living. What inspired me, I'm also a great admirer of Kurt Weill, and I have a huge collection of Kurt Weill material. The Kurt Weill Foundation still publishes a semi-annual newsletter, which is very slick, that includes articles and news and reviews. So that gave me the idea, but I thought, why should a dead composer have a newsletter and not the greatest living composer lyricist? So there I go. And what was Sondheim's reaction when you proposed this? I'm not sure, as I said, if he really understood what it was going to be, but when he saw issues and he corrected things. It was because he realized that this was something for his legacy. And that's why he made corrections for what I thought were minor things, but they needed to be corrected. So that's why he wrote notes and told me what was wrong. One of the things I think that's so great about this book is that the 10-year period that you deal with takes us from passion to roadshow which I think is probably the least discussed period in Sondheim's life and work. So it really fills in a gap, I think. Correct. I'm in correspondence with a person, I won't say her name, but she is just obsessed with Roadshow. She collects every piece of audio tape that she can find from the tryouts to the performances, and she knows everything about it. She knows so much more about Roadshow than I do, and she followed it from the beginning for your listeners. This started off many, many years before he actually wrote something. It's about the Meisner brothers who were land speculators in Florida. They were twins. So it was their story, and it started off as a show called Wise Guys, and then it became Gold, and then it became Bounce, and finally it became Roadshow. The book writer was John Weidman, and Sondheim, during this 10-year period, loved to talk about it. I mean, we would get on the phone, and he would talk about the changes and what the two of them were doing to change it because every time they performed it or had a tryout, it got negative reviews or questionable reviews at least. Yeah, it's sort of a through line through the book, which I thought was really interesting because it takes almost a 10-year development process for that show. 
Another thing about the book that I liked was it works as sort of a best of of the Sondheim review from that first 10 years because you include articles, portions of articles that you published during that time. How did you decide what you were going to include and what you were not going to include in regard to that? I like to do the interviews with Sondheim, the talks that he gave, and then also the pieces that we ran about the revivals that were during that period, because there were about five major revivals of his shows in that 10-year period. What I relished was the wealth of quotes from Sondheim, firsthand quotes. Many of them were new. Many were things that I had not exactly heard him say in other places, things that were in the magazines that theoretically we could all go find, but now you've collected them in this book sort of hears words of wisdom from Stephen Sondheim. I really liked when he went to Dallas at Southern Methodist University, which is early in the magazine and therefore early in the book. He was really open with the students there and talked about the shows that he liked and didn't like and what happened to some of them and very, very frank. I think the students were amazed and they asked such wonderful questions that I think maybe reporters might be afraid to ask, but they just asked them. One of them was, uh, I heard you like country music, which I had never heard of. And he said, yes. And then they asked him if he would ever write a country song himself. He denied that he would ever write a country song. <laughs> I'd like to hear the Stephen Sondheim country yeah. song. So much of it is his advice on playwriting, on writing musicals, and it's so valuable. In a few weeks, I'm going to go to NYU to teach a course to the musical theater writing students there. And I've already pulled out a few quotes from your book about Sondheim's advice about writing musicals that I'm going to incorporate into that lecture. It's yeah. really full of great little gems like that. I tried to make the book not about me, but about him. It is a memoir, and I do reveal some reactions that I had, but basically, I wanted it to be about Sondheim and his works. And that's what the magazine was about and not about me. What I found really interesting is how closely he read the magazine. The first time he saw it, you had a finished edition, I'm assuming, completely published and ready to go. He got a copy just like everybody else. Yeah. Did you ask him for notes or did he just offer those on his own? <laughs> I did not ask him for notes. I didn't expect him to respond. I thought, okay, he didn't get the magazine and said, his leather chair or not. Maybe just throw it away. I didn't know what his reaction would be. So I was really surprised that he responded almost to every issue, at least at the beginning. He would be very specific about things. And you quoted those in the book and you quoted those in the magazine as well, right? Did you right. publish all his responses? There was one I did not and we can get into that. But yes, I always printed his responses. Well, let's talk about that because he got a little prickly a couple times, which was fascinating. And I loved your candor about all of that. He did not always like what the magazine had to say. 90% of the time, it seems like he was entirely supportive of the magazine, but there were a couple times when you got under his skin, it seems like. Well, the main one was when we published a review of the London production of Passion. That was in 1996, two years after the Broadway production. And we ran a review by a reviewer who had done other Sondheim reviews for us. And it was not a negative review at all. It was just a review, very plain and pointing out some things. The reviewer had seen the production in New York and compared 
reacted and not favorably to the New York production. So we ran the preview with a little photo. And, and there were no red flags for you at all at this point? No, no red flags for me at all. We ran reviews all the time. A good portion of the magazine was reviews from the United States and abroad. Yeah. So I picked up the phone one time shortly after the magazine was delivered, and he was furious. He started in right away. How could we print that? Who is this person? The person doesn't know anything about musicals, doesn't know anything about my work. All the reviews in London were so favorable. Well, it's true that British critics are very favorable to Sondheim. I mean, that's just a fact. And he went on and on. It seemed like a couple of hours, but it was probably 20 minutes. And then he hung up. Reminded me of when I was editor at the journal, at the paper, somebody would call and complain about a story a reporter had written, and I'd have to fend him off and defend the reporter. He would just not listen to me at all. So I wrote him a letter, you know, explained the reviewer's credentials. I explained that not all the critics at this time in London were favorable, and I had their reviews, so I could point that out. So I sent off the letter, and before he even got it, he sent me a note complaining again about the reviewer and libeling her. It was a real libelous statement. He said the reviewer made stuff up. Well, you can't say that. That's libelous. And as a journalist, I could not print that or I would be held liable. So I did not print that letter. But then he called again. <laughs> and this went on for weeks. He wasn't as upset this time, but he was still upset. And then he hung up again. And then he never brought it up again, ever. This was 1996, and I was in touch with him until 2004, and never, ever said anything about it again. Did you ever figure out what he was so upset about? No, I'm still baffled. I don't know what he was upset about. I went back and read the review, couldn't find anything that was objectionable for him. It was just a review. I don't know. I just don't know. And he certainly was used to getting a myriad of kinds of reviews for his work. Oh, yeah. Look at the reviews for Merrily, which practically drove him away from musical theater. It was just a baffling experience. I still don't understand it all these years later. I thought that was a very interesting part of the book. I'm sure you were pleased that that didn't happen very often. There was only one other little incident. I was fascinated by his early work and thinking that maybe readers would read his early lyrics and maybe see how it compared with his later work. And by early work, you're talking about when he was a child. High school, yeah. He went to George School, and he wrote a little musical there. And so I discovered his lyrics, and I published that. And he was very upset about that. He thought that for publishing his Juvenalia. There's all this talk now about Mary Rogers' book, Shy, and the relationship with Sondheim, and how they, quote, were planning a marriage, though that never happened. They had worked on a show during that time. Time, I think, in which they took the show The Lady or the Tiger. It's an old legend about uh, Count having to choose between two doors and behind one is a lady and the other one is a tiger. Well, they composed a lot of material for that, including some songs. I was fascinated that they did that much together, but they finally abandoned it. It was supposed to be a television musical. Does any of that material survive? Is that still around? Yeah, it's preserved. Nor it is the State Historical Society of Wisconsin 
Wisconsin, which is 90 miles away from me in Madison, had a lot of theater collections. The Lunds, for example, at some point, theater people were donating their early work to there instead of the Library of Congress. And I discovered this, so I went over and looked at all this stuff, and it's still there available to the public. That's fascinating. And do you know why they were doing this? I mean, the Lunds live near right, there. Right, right. So do you think that they developed a relationship and then they encouraged other people to support not, it, or how do you think it happened? Probably. I think that may have been, I don't know the origin of it, but a lot of theater people donated their work there. Interesting. Interesting also with The Lady and the Tiger, because of course, Bach and Harnick would use that story as the second act of The Apple Tree. I wonder if those were related in any way, if that idea was swirling around at that period. Yeah, I just don't know. Did you have any interaction with Mary Rogers during your time at the Sondheim Review? I did not. It would have been interesting. She certainly is outspoken, at least in that book. I learned more about Mary Rogers and her parents than I really wanted to know, I think. It certainly has created quite a talk in the theater world, which is great. It gets people interested in the history of Broadway is a fantastic thing. Yeah, it is really a behind-the-scenes story. We talked about what his reaction to the Sondheim Review was initially. Did that change over time? Did he take pride in this? Was it something he pointed to at any time that you know of? I did hear that he did have the magazine in his office, and it was displayed, and he would point it out to people. This is all secondhand. I don't know who he did this with, but it was clearly a part of his life. And how did that make you feel when you heard that? You know, I'm a journalist. I take pride in my work. And if somebody likes it, I'm pleased. Don't go away. Paul and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. We've come a long way. We've been through a lot. We've learned how to bounce. As Papa would say, you're hot and you're not. You better learn to bounce. If something goes wrong, that's all right. Bounce along, just travel light. You go off the track, don't look back. That's the thing that counts. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. 
With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You hit a few bumps. You make a few gaps. You learn how to bounce. You take a few lumps, you have a few laughs, and all the while you bounce. Don't dwell on the times that you fail. Remember the times when you sail. Find a new road, forge a new trail. Bounce. Of the things that Sondheim said to you personally, what were the things that were most memorable? And of course, we talked a little bit about when he was angry at you. I'm sure that's very memorable. But were there moments when you had conversations with him that really have stuck with you over time? I think it was when he was talking about what eventually became Roadshow, because he loved to talk about it. From the beginning, he was so excited about it. It was like, what does George say on Sunday in the Park? Show me something new. That was him. He was so excited about this show. I would just smile listening to him because he was so enthusiastic and interested in what he was doing and how he was changing it. And it was just so fascinating to listen to this guy. And so over those years that he's talking about this, with renewed enthusiasm, it seems like, with each incarnation, did you get to see each of those incarnations of Roadshow along the way? Yes, yes. I went to Chicago and Washington to see what was then called Bounce in Chicago. Chicago was the world premiere of the show, and I could see the problems then. And then a few months later, it was in Washington with some changes, and I went to Washington to see that as well. How did your perception of the show compare and contrast with Sondheim's enthusiasm about it? Did you feel like you were on the same page with him in terms of what you were seeing and what he was saying? No. I wondered whether he was seeing it through the eyes of the composer rather than through the eyes of the audience, because I think he should have seen more more of what the problems were in this show. I don't know if anybody ever produces it anymore. It's interesting. I've looked at it a couple of times when I was running a theater and, you know, you want to do it because it's Sondheim's last major work. Right. But I'm interested to see if somebody can rediscover something in it that makes it yeah. seem more viable than it does right now. There's some nice songs in it. I mean, yeah. It's... And the craft of it is really fantastic, especially in terms of the musical sequences. Yeah. What? Remember when I was in bed with the mumps and had to stay in New Year's Eve? Frankly, no. Remember how I was so down in the dumps when everyone started to leave? Jesus, it's cold. 
Are you sorry we came, Willie? You sorry we came? Yes. No. Go to sleep. At midnight with everyone down at the lake To take in the fireworks show Oh yeah I cried till I fell half asleep by mistake And I snuck upstairs and I shook you awake You bundled me up in a couple of quilts And you carried me up all the way to the roof And that slippery patch Yeah, we nearly got killed But we got to see everything Remember the whiz What are your Sondheim touchstones? What are the shows that you would single out as being the most significant in terms of your appreciation in your life? Follies, Night Music, Pacific Overtures. I love that show. Talk a little bit about each of those. Why Follies? What's so significant about Follies for you? It has so many layers, so many things you can think about, the characters and the themes of the show, of love and loss and how fragile people are and how they treat one another badly sometimes. It's just so much to think about after seeing Follies. Night music because of its waltzes. It's just such a romantic, poignant musical with such interesting characters and it's a terrific story. There's a section in the book where you talk about it being whipped cream with knives. Right, yeah, that was Hal Prince's story. And it does, as in all Sondheim, the surface is one thing and then you go down deep and you find something else. And a lot of pain under the surface as well. Correct. And then Pacific Overtures. It was so adventurous. And because who would think of writing a musical about the westernization of Japan in kabuki style, no less, with an all-male cast? I mean... Right. <laughs> it boggles me. But the songs and the score and the story was so intriguing that I just love it. And then, well, Sunday in the Park, the story of an artist, and one could say sometimes own story of creation, of the problems of creating art and living only for the work. And because of that, other people may be ignored or treated badly. But the work is the most important thing. And when the work turns out to be Sunday afternoon on the island of Grand Jatte or Sunday in the park with George, it's a masterpiece. And it's interesting, you have a couple sections in the book where Sondheim is disputing how autobiographical any of his works are, including Sunday in the park with George. Yeah, yeah. But I found it interesting that he doesn't really succeed in disputing them. In the end, I came away thinking, yeah, but they really are pretty autobiographical. Even the way he describes them, you go like, well, yeah, you're sort of proving the other people's point to a certain extent. Right. We may read too much into it, but there's obviously some things that are autobiographical. What do you think his most autobiographical works or sections of works are? I think Merrily. I yeah. think that really is autobiographical in a way. And maybe Mary Rogers is Mary in that script. Her name is Mary, but I guess she's Mary in the original play too. So yeah. <laughs> we can't read too much into that. And even he has admitted that the opening doors is entirely autobiographical. How's it going? Good, you. Fair. Yeah, tell me. 
Chinese laundry. Hi. Mary, say hello. I think I got a job. Where? True romances. Posing. Thank you. Writing captions. What about the book? What about the book? Nothing. Are you working on the book? Yes. Good. No. Mary. Right, I know. Yes, me and Balzac. And you can see that I don't know if when we get to the beginning or the end or whatever, and we see the characters as they change, that that's so much autobiographical. But I think the beginning of it is, at least, or the end or whatever. I finished the one act. I got an audition. I started the story. Rehearsal pianist. So where are we eating? I'm moving to Playboy. The publisher called me. I'm doing a rewrite. My parents are coming. I saw my fair lady. I rewrote the rewrite. I sort of enjoyed it. I threw out the story. I'm meeting an agent. We'll all get together on Sunday. We're opening doors. Scene, here we are. We're filling up days on a dime. That faraway shores, looking not too far. We're following every star. When Sondheim died, so many people came forward with their letters that they had received from Sondheim, and he was so prolific in that regard. Was that the inspiration for this book? When he died, I, I was saddened, of course. I mean, he was 91, so one can't be too surprised. I took time to go through all those notes and letters that he sent me, and I took time to go through the magazines that I'd published in those 10 years, and I thought, there's a book here. People would be interested in my relationship with Sondheim and what the magazine was about and how we covered Sondheim during that time. It was purely as a journalist that I wrote it, as a memoir. And clearly, his death demonstrated the level of interest that there was in Sondheim yes. and the level of interest in the way he interacted with other people in the world. Clearly, you had a story to tell in that regard. Yeah, and my publisher agreed. One of the things that's remarkable about your book is the photo insert. Talk a little bit about how that came to be. Well, it was a surprise to me. As I was writing it, I said to the publisher, wouldn't it be nice if we had a little insert in the middle of the book with 10 or 12 pages and we could run some photos that we published in the Sondheim Review? And he said, no, we're going to publish 64 pages. Of <laughs> and it surprised me <laughs> because I thought, you know, this is a very small publisher. I don't know what his budget is, but this was obviously a costly thing. And so a a lot of production photos from Broadway and the Kennedy celebration and around the world, lyrics to some songs, covers of the Sondheim Review, cover of Time magazine and Newsweek in which Sondheim was featured. I call it a Sondheim scrapbook. I like it a lot and I think readers will like it a lot. And talk a little bit about the chronology at the end because I was very interested in that. When I got to it, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I will refer to this very, very often. Yeah, that took a lot of work, obviously. Someone on the publisher's staff, put most of it together, and then I did some more work on it and added some things, especially at the end where we'd talk about how he was writing this new show and how he'd seen Company, the revival on Broadway just before he died. He was on Colbert. and I mean, he went to two shows, matinee and evening performances of two shows on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and he died the day after Thanksgiving. That's incredible. He was still in it. He was still doing it. A theater fan to the very, very end. Let's talk about legacy, because although this book covers the 10 years that you were editor, the Sondheim Review went on after you. After 10 years, you know, I had done all this traveling. I had 
thought of the stories, I'd have signed the stories. I had a couple of editors who helped me edit stories, but I did a lot of the editing. I worked with the designer. I went to the printer and watched the magazine being printed. I mean, this was a lot of work. And so after 10 years, I really needed to get a life. Our kids were having their own kids at that point. Anyway, an assistant editor took it over, and it continued until 2006. He did a great job, by the way. And of course, the person who took over was Rick Pender, who has been a guest on this show as well, and the editor of the Sondheim Encyclopedia. And he had very nice things to say about you, of course, and about none of that would have happened for him if it wasn't for you starting this amazing magazine to begin with. He was very good. I mean, he introduced some things into the magazine that I did not. He said he didn't have much of a relationship with Sondheim. Sondheim didn't send him notes like he did me. But that was probably because when I did, that it was new to him and he wanted to have a voice in it. I think maybe he decided, well, these people are doing it and they're doing it okay or all right and I don't have to be involved. Which was a great sort of credit to you. He had confidence that the magazine was good and was going to continue to be good and he didn't need to worry about it. Right. He wouldn't have to take his little pencil and uh, (laughs) circle things and write me notes. Well, I'm sure you would have loved to have had even more of those notes to look back on. Yeah, I treasure them. I don't have them, actually. I had this huge collection, and I gave it all to the Market University in Milwaukee, and they established the Stephen Sondheim Research Collection, which is open to the public if anybody wants to really do research. All the material that I collected, the records, tapes, books, clippings, millions of clippings, pictures, yeah. What a great resource. But you had to then go to them to look at your own work. Yes, and I would not have been able to write this book without the curator there helping me along and finding the material that I needed. Well, we learned about two archives of theater-related material today, which I did not previously know about and may mean I have to take a trip to the Midwest at some point. Oh, good. Paul Salcini, it's been so wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Nation and sharing the details of your new book, Sondheim and Me. Thank you so much, David. I really enjoyed it. I hope people enjoy the book as well. I think they will. I'm certain they will. Thank you. I called a producer. I sent off the one act. I started the story. He said to come see him. I dropped out of college. I met this musician. I'm playing a nightclub. They're doing my one act. I'm working for Red Bull. I rewrote the ballad. I finished the story. We started rehearsals. I threw out the story and then the musician. I'm going to If you enjoy this podcast, I feel certain that you will also enjoy joining our Broadway Nation Facebook group, where you'll find daily postings of images, videos, articles, and links that relate to and enhance each and every episode of this podcast. Just Google Broadway Nation Facebook group and join the more than 2,000 other fans of Broadway Nation. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me. David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm Beth. I'm Frank. I really thought I stank. I'm Mary. Charlie. By the way, I'm told we open Saturday. But you're not serious. Nobody's ready. Apparently somebody canceled a booking. The songs aren't finished. What about class?
costumes. And how do I learn all these numbers? I'll bring you the copies of everything later this evening. Okay, Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.